book of James, toward the end of the New Testament, right after Hebrews, pretty good sized book. Hebrews, James, chapter 1. This morning we're going to return to the study that we began a few weeks ago, and then we had a little bit of a diversion as we ordained uh, some new leaders and <coughs> celebrated the Lord's Supper, <coughs> talked about something else, but now we come back to James. You may recall, just to give you a little bit of a review, uh, we first talked about God's great plans for us to make us mature and complete, not lacking anything, but how <coughs> that God brings us to that maturity often by allowing, bringing into our lives various kinds of trouble, trials, which test us to toughen our faith. But in the midst of it all, we heard this great promise that God will give us all the wisdom that we need, not just for our curiosity, but wisdom for those who are committed to walk in his ways and to do what he says and to go where he leads, no matter what that is. And now we come this morning to examine a new element in our troubles, uh, the matter of money. I think it's remarkable how many times our troubles have something to do with money or our lack of money. So where's God in the midst of financial concerns, in the midst of our, our status in life or our lack of status in life? Where's God in all of that? Is, is God especially concerned for the poor? Or, or is our uh, prosperity a sign of his blessing? Which, you think? Well, let's see what he has to say here. Let me read verses 9 through 11. Verses 9 through 11. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position, but the one who is rich should take pride in his low position, because he will pass away like a wildflower. Where the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant, its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. Two truths, and they sound almost uh, opposite here, but uh, two truths in this text, one in the beginning of verse 9 and then one in verses 10 and 11. The first truth is this, that Jesus makes even the poor rich. Jesus makes even the poor rich. Now we all know that a person's paycheck is not really a very good measure of his real value. For example, <clears throat> is a rock star, some kid with an electric guitar and an amplifier as big as your house, is he really worth more than the, the, the concert master of some great harmonic orchestra. Yeah, he's not half the musician, yet he makes more money. Or, or is the young man that a college coach molds into an NFL star, is he really worth ten times as much as the coach that taught him to play? It doesn't seem like it, does it? Or is the entertainer who makes us forget our troubles and laugh really worth so much more, maybe a hundred times more than the faithful teacher that educates our children? It just doesn't follow. A paycheck is not a very good sign of real value. We all know that. 
This morning in our text, God wants to push us even beyond that. Even, even beyond the simple truth that, uh, that education and what you're contributing to society is more important than, than your paycheck. God wants to push us even beyond that. Everybody would recognize that. God wants us to see that real greatness is defined not only by our pay, not by our paycheck and not only just by not uh, 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 our, our contribution, but real greatness is defined by where we are in relationship to the Lord Jesus. Jesus makes even poor people rich. Case in point is what verse 9 calls the brother in humble circumstances. You and I recognize that euphemism, don't we? Humble circumstances. <coughs> that means this brother lives where you and I don't even want to go. It means that he wears clothes that we would throw away. It means he never enjoys little things that we consider necessities of life. They're luxuries that he'll never know. To put it bluntly, we're talking about the man who is poor humble circumstances. But James says, this poor man is a brother. In other words, he's saying this is a Christian man who is poor, living in humble circumstances. He's not only created in the image of God, something we forget quickly about the poor, but he has been recreated to be conformed to the image of Jesus. And that means that while he may stand before us in ragged clothes, he stands before God clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, spotless and clean. The fact that he's a Christian means that though the whole world may trample on his rights, it won't always be so. For he is a citizen of heaven. He is an heir of God's kingdom. He's adopted into the family of God. He's a child of the Almighty. You see, because he's a Christian, though he may be slave, a slave, though he may be the most menial servant, he will live forever in the new heaven and the new earth. For Christ makes even the poor man rich. I remembered a vivid illustration of this some years ago when Andrew Young was the mayor of Atlanta. I heard that he decided for his own education and to highlight the plight of the homeless that he would spend a few days living as a homeless man on the streets of Atlanta. And so he did, eating whatever he could find, scavenging for food like everyone else, sleeping on the grates, perhaps in a shelter some nights, going unnoticed by people for whom the poor are invisible. But it was all over, and he was telling his story to the television cameras. He made an interesting comment that stuck with me. He said that underlying all of his discomfort during those days, being cold and dirty and hungry, underlying all of that misery and making it all bearable, was the reality that he knew he was not really homeless. He knew that when this was all over, he would go back to his home and take a hot shower and put on clean clothes and sleep in his own warm bed 
and only remember the discomforts of the street as some distant memory. You see, that's exactly the situation of the poor Christian brother who is rich in Christ. He too may know what it is to be hungry or poor or tattered. But that doesn't tell the whole story for he knows that it's just temporary. Though he is poor in this world, God has made him rich for all eternity. As the great apostle Paul put it, he says, I know how to be rich, but I also know how to be poor. I can do all things through Christ. Why? As he says in another place, because I consider that these present sufferings are not worth comparing with the eternal weight of glory. Christ makes even poor people rich. So what are we to do with that truth? What impact should that have on us? Well, let me read verse 9 again. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position. Take pride in his high position. Here we see what God intends to do in us through the power of the gospel. God's agenda is not just to heap health and wealth on the poor people, to relieve them from their misery. That's not God's agenda. No, instead, God's agenda is to change us from the inside out so that in the midst of the humiliation which so frequently comes uh, accompanies poverty, that the child of God is able to stand tall with his, held hand, with his head held high no matter what the circumstances, for he knows that in Christ he is rich, a child of the living God. Dear brother or sister, why are you distraught at the thought of your need? If you're in Christ, you're rich. Rich with a wealth infinitely more important than the size of your bank account. That richness is not just pie in the sky by and by. You're rich today. You have the fellowship of Christian brothers and sisters while the whole world is full of sad and lonely people. You're not. You're rich. You're peace with God in the midst of a world that is riddled with anxiety. But you don't need to be, for you're rich in Christ. You have a mission in life. While your peers search for a reason to live, you have a calling. And you're endowed with gifts of the Spirit of God that are useful for His church for all eternity while others clamor after petty little material trinkets. You're rich. You're a child of the King of Kings. You're a co-heir with Christ. You're a citizen of heaven. You're a child of the living, loving God. Don't let anyone crush you down into the mold of nothingness. If your troubles press, you today, to look beyond today to the hope of riches and glory forever, then praise God for such trials. Consider it pure joy when you face those kind of trials. For they force you to know my rich, my richness, my wealth, not in the things here, it's in Jesus. 
Oh, but not all of us are poor, are we? What about the prosperous? We all are all pretty prosperous, you know. You say, oh, no, not me. I'm not. Oh, yes, you are. Everyone sitting in this room is among the 10%, the top 10% of the most wealthy people on the face of the earth. All of us would qualify. We are prosperous. We are rich. So what does the Lord have to say to us? Well, second point. Christ shows the rich their poverty. Christ shows the rich their poverty. Now, on the one hand, we know that riches are not everything. We admit that. In fact, we have all these little cliches to remind ourselves of that. We say, ah, the rich man puts his pants on one leg at a time, just like everybody else, right? Or we say, you can't buy happiness. Or, or we'll say something like, I wouldn't want that situation for all the money in the world. We know riches are not everything. And yet, though we say that, we still think pretty highly of wealth. Money can't make us younger, but it can make us look younger. It can make us beautiful, but it can give us beautiful clothes. And I ask how old and wrinkled we're getting. Riches can't guarantee our security, but we sure feel a lot better when we have money in the bank and a good insurance policy, don't we? And so, as a society, and I fear that as we as Christians in such a society, we increasingly come to ignore what we know about riches, that they're not everything. And instead, we increasingly begin to put our trust more and more in our wealth, in our riches, to find our security and how much stuff we have, how much money we have, in short, to make wealth our God. The place we look for peace and joy and contentment and meaning and security. Oh, but God is not willing for us to fall into that trap. He wants us to see the value of what he makes us in Christ underneath all these circumstances. In fact, he wants to show us that all these circumstances of wealth and comfort are nothing. The only thing that matters is what he makes us, the richness that he gives us in Christ. He wants we who are rich to see that we are poor. And so in James, we are reminded of our low position. Let me read verse 10 and 11 again. But the one who is rich should take pride in his low position because he will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant, and its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. And in the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business picture is quite vivid for anyone who's ever lived in the desert. God says the rich man is like a wildflower. Not the kind of wildflower we have around here. You see, we're blessed with it being green year-round, but that's not the way it is in the desert. In the early spring, a little bit of green appears on the, heel, on the hills, and 
little wildflowers shoot up with some hope, but it doesn't last. The blazing sun comes out, and it's just too much in a matter of days. It's seemingly in a matter of a few hours sometimes. The flower wilts, the ground turns brown, and there's nothing left but desert again. Brown and parched and dry. Every year this picture is played out in the southwest of this country. And God says the rich man is like that little desert wildflower. Oh, it may look so impressive and so glorious, but only for a moment. And then it's gone. Right in the midst of its glory, it's just shriveled and gone. So is the rich man. God wants to impress upon the rich the true poverty. Oh, but the poverty is not just that riches are insecure. That, it's more than that. Even. The poverty of the rich which God sees is the same desperate poverty which everyone has. It's the hopeless spiritual condition that the New Testament describes for us. You see, even the rich are separated from God by our sin. Cut off from Christ. Even the rich cannot earn or buy citizenship in heaven. Even the rich are hopeless outside of God's covenant of grace. Even the rich are unable to draw near to God in their own strength. Even the rich are dead in trespasses and sin, unable to pull themselves up by their bootstraps in God's sight. You see, God is right when he declares that there's no difference. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Rich and poor alike, there's no difference. As Keith Green says in one song, Think of all the people you know. They have everything they want, but they have empty souls. God is concerned to show the rich their poverty before him. But we can mask our weakness, our sinfulness, our poverty, the poverty of our souls. We can mask it from one another. In fact, the richer we are, the more means we have to keep the facade up. But God cuts right through it all. And he addresses us where we really stand, as we really are, behind the mask. And what he sees, he calls poverty. Spiritual bankruptcy. What do we do with that? Well, our natural inclination is to resent it. We don't like that kind of exposure. We don't like even God telling us that we're nothing and that we can't pay our own way. We don't like that. We don't want anybody pulling off our mask of respectability and showing that we are dirty and corrupt inside. We don't want anybody showing that we have vast unpaid debt to God that we can never get away from. We don't want to see that. And the more well-to-do we are and the more of an image we've built for ourselves, the more we resent it. And that's what makes the instruction of verse 10 so stunning. He says in verse 10, the one who is rich should take pride in his low position. Take pride in his low position? That's what he says. That's the opposite of what we want to do. We, we, we want to avoid those low things. We don't want to be humiliated. He says, take pride 
in your poverty. Why? Why would God ask us to rejoice in our spiritual bankruptcy? Because spiritual poverty is the prerequisite for being made rich in Christ with the same riches he gives to the poor. Spiritual poverty, the admission of our spiritual poverty, is the prerequisite of ever knowing the wealth of riches that we have in Christ. As long as we think we are self-sufficient and we can handle it, we have class, we have money, we have clout, we have position, we have education, we're from a good family, we can handle it, we're hopeless. It's when we see that before God we're empty-handed, bankrupt. Then there's hope because he makes the poor rich. So if God uses trouble or trial to point out your poverty of spirit, consider it pure joy, brothers and sisters. If in the midst of your wealth and your prosperity and your comfort, God allows you to get cancer so that you see that you're just a frail desert flower. Praise God that he brought you to nothingness so that you might know the wealth that's in Christ. For as long as we think we're okay, we're hopeless. God is perfecting us through that trouble so that our wealth will not consist of treasures that will be gone in a second treasures that moth and rust can't corrupt and that thieves can't steal. Well, the Lord sent Jeremiah to say it this way, let not the wise man boast of his wisdom or the strong man boast of his strength or the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast about this that he understands and knows that I am the Lord who exercises kindness and justice and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. So is Jesus on the side of the rich or the poor? Well, the Pharisees would have said the rich. Many Christians would say that. After all, didn't God say he would prosper those he loves? And so if we prosper, are we not like Abraham, a very rich man? We're blessed of God. Isn't our prosperity a sign of God's blessing? Others would say, oh, no, 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 no. It's the poor whom the Lord is pleased with. I mean, Jesus said, blessed are the poor, right? And he says in the Proverbs, if you lend to the poor, if you give to the poor, you lend to God. And it's the rich who will be condemned for hoarding riches in the last day. Surely it's the poor that God's concerned about, right? Well, which is it? Is the richness a sign of blessing or is God concerned for the poor? Well, our text says neither one. Neither one. Here Jesus does not condemn riches and Jesus does not glorify poverty. 
Instead, he speaks to us of the characteristic weaknesses of both conditions, thus equipping both rich and poor for the trials that come in their situation. You see, the poor have very little problem seeing how desperate they are. It's always before them. People are in their face all the time telling them they're nothing. That's why Jesus calls it blessed, not because it's better to be poor than to be rich, but because with our physical neediness comes a more ready recognition of our spiritual need. Our poverty of heart and mourning over sin, meekness and hunger for God, those things lead us to Christ who makes us truly rich. Now the difficulty for the poor man is a difficulty rising above the trials of the external circumstances. For the world is constantly beating the poor man down while the truth of God says you are rich in Christ. The challenge is to live in light of God's truth rather than just be forced into the mold of the world. To remember that in Christ I'm rich before God. On the other hand, the rich person, he has no trouble feeling good about himself, about his situation. He's surrounded by comfort Constantly told by the world how important he is. Indeed, he probably feels too good about his circumstances. What's difficult for the rich is to see the spiritual poverty that exists before God. To see that his riches mean nothing. He'll be gone in an instant. To see himself as poor because of his sin. Difficult for the rich to see the very things that would make them rich before God. Therefore, whatever circumstances or trials or trouble God brings to cause the rich to, to realize their lowliness, that's a reason for rejoicing. The reminder of the frailty of life equips the rich for Christian maturity, for it humbles them before God. So God equips the rich and he equips the poor. No matter what your situation this morning, see, God is asking to look beyond your situation. If you're poor, don't worry about your poverty. Look beyond that and see Christ. If you're rich, don't think so much of yourself. Look beyond that and see Christ. For what matters, what is riches in the long run, is where do we stand in regard to Christ? Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, dear Lord, for your truth that cuts through our circumstances. Lord, we put so much hope in what we see and the image that we can build for ourselves and thank you that you show us what is really true, how you see it, you who see through the external facade and see us as we really are. I pray, Lord, that you would give us the grace to humble ourselves before you and find a true wealth in Jesus, to trust you, Lord Jesus, as our Savior and to follow you as our Lord, so that whatever our circumstances, whether rich or poor, that they matter really very little, that we belong to you and we know you and we'll know you for eternity. Give us such a long perspective, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.